Hi, everybody. This is Leonard DiLorenzo, host of Church Life Today. Before we get to today's episode, just a quick word from me to you. We just passed our second anniversary of this show, and I wanted to say thanks. Thanks for listening, and thanks for all the great feedback you've sent our way in the past two years. If you like what you hear in our conversations with pastoral leaders and scholars, please pass our episodes along to others. Everything's available online at RedeemerRadio.com slash churchlife or on SoundCloud at Church Life Today. And if you live in an area where your local Catholic radio station does not carry our show, call your station, send them an email, ask them to take us on. Now let's get to today's show. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Welcome to Church Life Today. This is Leonard DiLorenzo, the McGrath Institute for Church Life. This episode is part two of a two-part discussion focusing on some of the decisions rendered by the Supreme Court in June and July 2020. My guest is Professor Rick Garnett of the University of Notre Dame Law School. He was with me here for part one. Happy to have him back for part two. In our previous episode, we talked about three cases the Supreme Court decided in the summer of 2020. We talked about Bostock v. Clayton County and a decision concerning civil rights for LGBTQ employees. We talked about Our Lady of Guadalupe and St. James Schools with a decision about religious institutions' authority to set the terms of employment in accordance with their mission. And Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue with a decision about scholarships or tuition assistance from government source being applied to private schools and specifically to religious schools. Well, Rick, thanks for sticking around with us to talk about a little bit more of the 2020 summer Supreme Court decisions. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. So I want to start this second half of our interview by discussing another case concerning the liberty of religious institutions and how they conduct themselves in pursuit of their mission. And this is the case of the Little Sisters of the Poor, the... I believe it's the state of Pennsylvania. Tell us about the interests of the religious community here and what this case concerned. Yeah, so your listeners will probably be aware that the litigation about this contraception coverage mandate that was part of the Affordable Care Act, boy, 10 years ago now, has been going on for a long time. It's like a something out of Charles Dickens. <laughs> this is the latest version of this dispute to get to the Supreme Court. I am going to oversimplify. So for the lawyers out there, I apologize, but there's a lot of technical administrative law questions here. But sort of the nutshell version is that the current administration in its department of HHS had put together a new exemption that was broader than the exemption that had existed in the past. This was an exemption that would allow employers to not provide contraception coverage in their health plans. And it was an exemption, like I said, that was an expansion. It it wasn't limited to sort of a narrow subset of entirely religious employees. It covered not only employers with religious objections, but even employers with moral but non-religious objections. So the Little Sisters are sort of part of a larger universe of entities that in theory could be exempt. Although on the ground, again, despite what we read in the press, very few employers have had any interest in taking advantage of this uh, exemption because, well, for reasons we're familiar with. So Pennsylvania, in this particular case, challenged the administration's exemption. And the, the reason they challenged it was really had nothing to do with religious freedom or the morality of contraception. It 
just was about, they claimed the administration hadn't followed the correct procedures in developing hmm. this exemption. But the subtext is obviously more than just that, right? The subtext is more of this kind of continuing debate about whether it's appropriate for religious employers to be able to deny this coverage to their employees, even if we're talking about the little sisters of the poor. Lurking in the background of the case a little deeper, if you scraped away some of the technical procedural and administrative questions, there were those who were arguing that an exemption like this should not be allowed because in effect, the government was allowing employers to impose their religion on the employees. And the claim was that that kind of imposition the kind of causing harm to employees was a violation of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. And the, the court did not agree with that argument. What the court said in the Little Sisters case, it's a win for the Little Sisters. But on the surface, the court's opinion isn't so much about religious freedom, like the earlier, like Hobby Lobby was, for example. Uh, the court basically said, no, the administration did this fine. And as you might know, as your listeners mm -hmm. might know, there's been a couple cases where the court has told the this current administration that they haven't followed the correct procedures, as in the case involving DACA. Mm -hmm. But here, the administration did follow the correct procedures, the court thought, and therefore the exemption is permissible. Now, it doesn't mean that this fight is over. There are additional reasons that would allow some people to challenge this exemption. And then, of course, depending on what happens in the next election, the exemption could be reversed by a different administration and a different administrative agency. But for now, the exemption's in place, and the court has said that it's a legally permissible exemption. So you mentioned the Hobby Lobby case uh, that was in 2014, I believe. Yeah. Remind us about that case and what was decided there. Yeah. So in that case, it wasn't about the kind of technicalities of the administration giving an exemption. In that case, the previous administration was not exempting very many employers from this contraception coverage mandate. And so several employers including Hobby Lobby, but also some ones that might seem more obviously religious, filed a lawsuit under the Federal Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. And they claimed that the mandate violated their religious freedom and that it was unjustified. And the court 5-4 agreed with them. So that's already the law that a religious employer is entitled by the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act to have an exemption. The current administration's new exemption was broader. It, it applied more a broader exemption than the one that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act had required in Hobby Lobby. I see. So if there were a change in administrations, let's say, in the next election, by the next election, or sometime down the line, and this exemption that was just put into place that was decided in the Little Sisters case was removed, it would revert, therefore, to what was decided in the Hobby Lobby case, which is that religious employers are exempted from providing contraception in their health coverage. Is that correct? Yeah, I want, to, I want to be careful. Please. I'm sorry, this sounds no, great. No, 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 no. I want the clarification, so that's really yeah, It wouldn't be so much like revert, like it would happen automatically, but you would be right that the state of the law would then be that Hobby Lobby is the precedent and other employees who didn't want to have to provide this coverage could invoke the Hobby Lobby case and say, you know, this is, we have a religious freedom restoration right not to, not to provide it. And who qualifies for that kind of exemption then? I mean, if Hobby Lobby does... It's because the family has a religious commitment, right? Can any company, therefore, qualify for that exemption on the basis of their ownership? The key thing in a religious freedom case, and this is true for the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, is that the person has to invoke a sincere religious belief. Uh, if you think about it, for most big publicly traded corporations like a McDonald's or a Ford Motor Company or a Walmart, it would be very difficult 
to ever plausibly claim that the company has a sincere religious commitment that forbids it from providing contraception coverage. So this is one of these situations where critics of the Little Sisters case or the Hobby Lobby case will sometimes say things like, this could result in 20 million employees losing their coverage, but that's actually, there's zero chance of, of that <laughs> happening. Uh, the only people who could get the benefit of the Hobby Lobby ruling would be entities that could show, like Hobby Lobby could, that they had a consistent and sincere and well-known religious dimension to their work. Right. right? So it's it, very few kind of non-religious big corporations are, are going to be allowed under the Hobby Lobby case to discontinue this coverage. Okay. So we're talking about religious schools, maybe religiously affiliated hospitals, Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A, and that's about it. <laughs> maybe Chick-fil-A, yeah. Maybe Chick-fil-A. Uh, you okay. know, one of the cases in Hobby Lobby was a, a, a Christian bookseller, right? Uh -huh. A Christian press. That, that'd be a possibility. Oh, I see. That's good. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. I'm talking with Rick Garnett, professor of law and concurrent professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. He's also the founding director of the Program on Church, State, and Society. Professor Garnett is helping us review the Supreme Court's summer 2020 decisions. This is part two of a two-part interview between the two of us. So let's go to a, another case that received a, a good bit of attention in the summer of 2020. It was an, a prominent abortion rights case, or maybe it was the most prominent, at least for this term. Therefore, pro-lifers and obviously many Catholics were following this. That was the June Medical Services v. Russo, or the state of Louisiana case. This had to do with abortion providers and mandates being placed on those abortion providers by the state. Tell us what was that issue and then what was decided. You told us what was at issue. Oh, okay. The, so the, maybe the I, over, I overshot. You did it. The state had enacted a rule requiring that abortion providers needed to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. Some laws like this were enacted in various states after the revelations about the gruesome Kermit Gosnell case, where mm -hmm. a lot of people were sort of horrified to learn about kind of the settings in which some of these abortions were taking place. And, you know, Gosnell went to prison. He was a very, well, it was a gruesome case. And so the Louisiana case was kind of a reaction to that. What caught people's eye, obviously, about June Medical was that it presented a very similar issue to one that had been decided, I believe, four years ago involving a Texas law that was very similar to this Louisiana law. Not, not identical, but very similar. And in the Texas case, the Supreme Court had said the Texas law is unconstitutional. It was a five to three decision. Justice Scalia had just retired. Justice Scalia hadn't been replaced yet. And Justice Kennedy voted with the abortion rights side. And they said, no, the Texas law doesn't satisfy the requirements for abortion regulations because it doesn't provide any, so they said, doesn't provide any health care benefits to women, and it would create too great of an obstacle to women seeking abortions. So the Louisiana legislature, nevertheless, enacts its law, which again is substantially similar. And the lower court says, well, actually, we think this law is different. It's not exactly like the Texas one. This one's okay. So the Supreme Court takes the case and you know, a lot of people are looking at this and saying, well, I mean, if this is the exact same law, some people said, as the one they said was unconstitutional before, then surely this one's unconstitutional too. You know, Some of us who are opponents of Roe versus Wade thought, well, maybe this is going to be a case where the new Supreme Court membership would, after all these years, say, you know, we're going to get out of this business of evaluating and second-guessing every single abortion regulation. We're just going to leave this to the states and we're going to overturn Roe versus Wade. That was certainly what a lot of people on the pro-life side were hoping for. Uh, and that didn't happen. The Supreme Court 
you know, to the disappointment of, of many, a majority said, look, there's this precedent from only four years ago. Under that precedent, these admitting privileges laws are unconstitutional. And so Chief Justice Roberts said, we're going to follow that precedent. And again, it was it was disappointing. And he talked a lot about stare decisis, which is the principle that you should follow cases that have been decided before. Ironically, perhaps Chief Justice Roberts had dissented right. in the Texas case. He thought the Texas law was constitutional. Right. So um, the question now, and it's an interesting one, is kind of what, what happened what, and what's next? I have two thoughts on that if you're interested. This is, yeah, that's where I was going to ask next, so yeah. please do. So one thing is that, and forgive me if this is too far in the weeds, but in the course of claiming to follow the precedent from four years ago, and in the course of striking down the Louisiana law, Chief Justice Roberts, in his opinion, actually articulated the relevant legal test in a way that's better for the pro-life side than the articulation had been four years ago. It's, it's a I know that sounds kind of strange. Right, but, so he voted um, against it, but nevertheless. Yeah. So in an interesting kind of way, he deferred to a case from four years ago, which he then kind of revised the reasoning of hmm. in such a way that probably going forward, the landscape is actually more friendly to regulations of abortion than it was before. So it's in that sense, there's something of a mixed bag here. I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. But yeah. Could you could you walk us through a little bit of that the the sort of rationale yeah, you gave? I know I know it's probably we're in danger of going very deep into kind of legal scholarship yeah. here, but I'll try, to, I'll try to keep it straightforward. Yeah, give it to us. Basically, you know, in, in the case four years ago, the court said in an opinion by Stephen Breyer that in order for an abortion regulation to be permissible, it has to provide some benefits, health benefits or otherwise, to women seeking abortions. Okay. Like that has, if you're thinking about the costs and benefits of an abortion regulation, Justice Breyer had suggested that the benefits have to include health benefits to women. Yeah. That hadn't been the law before. Before, what the court had said was the state's allowed to regulate abortion in order to advance its interest in protecting unborn life. Now, it can't impose what they called an undue burden on women who do want to seek abortions. But as long as the regulations were reasonable, and as long as they didn't impose an undue burden, it was enough that the state was trying to make a pro-life statement. And so what happened four years ago had really muddied the waters and made it much more difficult for legislatures in states that are pro-life to kind of to legislate in ways that showed that commitment. And Chief Justice Roberts undid that. He was kind of clever how he wrote it. But he said, no, no, I mean, what we said, you know, in the Casey case almost 30 years ago is that states can't put excessive obstacles in the way of women who want to get abortions, at least before viability. But we never said that in order to be justifiable, there had to be some demonstrable health benefit to the woman. There can't be a health harm, but there can't be a, you don't have to show a health benefit. So that's, that's actually a positive. So imagine something like a requirement of seeing an ultrasound. Right. A lot of states have done this and they've actually been quite effective from the pro-life perspective. Right. But, you know, under the precedent four years ago, those were, those were vulnerable because it was hard to show how the ultrasound had a health-related benefit for the women, even though it was clearly trying to make up a, a pro-life state. Now I think those laws are in, uh, in better shape. So that's, that's all by way of saying one, one feature of the case. The second thing that I think is relevant, and, and maybe I'm being overly optimistic here, is that none of the five justices who, I don't like these labels, but for lack of a better word, are the more conservative justices, None of them, including Justice Roberts, said that they believe that Roe and Casey were correct. Hmm. So flipping that around, there are five justices in the court who there's reason to believe think Roe and Casey were incorrect. Now, that doesn't mean that they'll overturn it. 
But it does leave open the possibility that if a case comes to the Supreme Court, which presents that question squarely, and this Louisiana case didn't, it's important to, I meant to say this before, Louisiana didn't, it explicitly didn't ask the Supreme Court to reconsider Roe and Casey. So yeah. you can leave those on the books, well, we, we, we should still win. And Chief Justice Roberts said, hey, just so we're clear, Louisiana didn't ask us to overturn this, so we're yeah. not going to consider that right now. You know, there are some tea leaves one could read that could lead one to suggest that in a case where a challenge to Roe versus Wade was squarely presented, there might be five votes to do that. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm joined by Professor Rick Garnett of the University of Notre Dame Law School. We're talking about the Supreme Court's summer 2020 decisions. We had one episode already where we talked about three cases. We're now in our second episode talking about another couple of cases. Uh, You can check out the previous episode on our podcast. Thanks for joining us for this one. Well, I know that this might push us into the realm of speculation and hypothesis, but what kind of case do you imagine would be the sort of case that would put Roe and Casey squarely before the court. Yeah. So to me, anyway, the most obvious example are the the rules that have prohibited abortions much earlier in pregnancy. Right? So generally speaking, now people think that a state may regulate abortion, even prohibit it, except in cases of the life and health of the mother after viability, which, you know, is in the early 20 weeks, let's say. But there are some states that have enacted bans that kick in at the time of when the heartbeat is first detectable, which is obviously much earlier, Uh or just say, pick a week, like 12 weeks. Rules like that are probably impossible to uphold within the Roe-Casey framework. And so if the Supreme Court took a case involving a challenge to one of those, if one of those laws ever got to the court, that that would squarely present the, the, the issue. Another case that could squarely present the issue are the rules that some states have enacted which uh, don't allow abortion when it's done for the purpose of sex selection or when it's done for the purpose of taking the life of a child who's been diagnosed with a, some sort of disability, Down mm-hmm. syndrome or something else. Those, those rules are difficult to uphold within the Roe-Casey framework. And there are some states that have that. I mean, Indiana enacted one, and it was invalidated by the Federal Court of Appeals. But if that were to get to the Supreme Court, then that would also kind of give the court no choice but to either affirm or to reverse the Roe-Casey framework. So if I'm hearing this right, I'm thinking about this, right? There's a kind of irony in this, right? That if a state put in a law, say, prohibiting abortion at an earlier stage of gestation than viability, or if there was a law put in by a state, as you're saying, that um, disqualified the permissibility of an abortion because it's expressly being done on on behalf of somebody who's interested in the sex of their child or on account of a condition like Down syndrome. Yeah. The state would then be brought to court, most likely by, broadly speaking, a pro-choice uh, interest, right? Whether it's in the state or it's an outside body. And only that way then would these cases make their way eventually to the Supreme Court, right? In other words, if we were to split this up a little bit, maybe too neatly, like, the pro-life side can't actually get this to the Supreme Court. They need the, a pro-choice advocate to bring them to court. Is that right? Yeah, that's it, a great point, Lenny. In a lot of countries, the, the high court, they call it the constitutional court in a lot of places. In a lot of places, the high court is allowed to make rulings on the constitutionality of laws kind of on its own or just, you know, anybody can ask them to do it. Like, there's no uh, case necessarily. Yeah, a senator yeah. can just say, hey, we're kind of curious. Is this constitutional? You know, In the United States, you know, ever since the late 1700s, the Supreme Court's made it very clear, we don't sit here to answer your hypotheticals. Which, you know, We solve cases, that's it. 
So you're exactly right. Uh, the Supreme Court doesn't answer a question unless it's presented in the context of what they call a case of controversy. And that requires two sides in a real lawsuit. Now, sometimes historically, these these cases have been kind of, let's say, staged. Right. Right. And I don't mean that as a pejorative thing, but right. parties have deliberately tried to create cases so that they could get an issue to the Supreme Court. I've read I've read several pieces by abortion rights supporters who say things like, look, we have to make sure that these cases don't get to the Supreme Court. One of the strategies to do that is to challenge abortion regulations on state constitutional grounds instead of federal constitutional grounds, because the Supreme Court can't review those. Uh-huh. So, for example, the state of Kansas, which you wouldn't think of as being particularly progressive or whatever the word might right. be, there was a, a very strict abortion regulation that was enacted. And as a matter of strategy and tactics, the challengers challenged it in state court, not federal court, because precisely for the reason you suggest, they wanted the state court to strike it down on state grounds. And there's nothing the Supreme Court can say about that. There's an irony in that too, right? Because if Roe or Casey were overturned, it would go back to the state to determine its laws, right? So they're they're appealing to the state judicial system, not the federal judicial system, which is precisely what this would go back to otherwise. You know, I gotta say, and it's it's a it's a good reminder for people. You know, I'm pro life, so it's a good reminder for me that um, reversing Roe and Casey, although I think that's very important for the integrity of constitutional law and just for the you know the morality of our political system, Mm -hmm. that doesn't end abortion at all, right? Lots of states would create constitutional rights to abortion within their own states. Lots of state legislatures would do what Virginia and New York have done recently, which is to legislatively basically declare publicly funded abortion on demand for any reason, any time. And reversing Roe versus Wade doesn't prevent that. So I've never wanted those to suggest that it's not important because, again, I think the integrity of the law matters quite a bit. But in a federal system and in a system, again, of separation of powers, removing Roe versus Wade really does just, it's just a first step. Then you have to, you move from the courts of law to the courts of public opinion, and there'll be a lot of work to be done there as well. Not to mention increasing support for pregnant, especially unwed mothers to increasing support personally and otherwise for those who experience financial hardship, all the things that lead to the decision to terminate a pregnancy. So I think it's a really important point. I'm glad you bring it up that this is important and it's the first step. Yeah. Well, Rick, just looking back over the summer, we have a couple couple of uh, more minutes. Were there any other cases or decisions that drew your attention that you want to kind of bring us into a little bit? Well, I thought I mean, there's, there's a lot that are interesting. I, I was fascinated by one that happened today where the Supreme Court declared that it turns out that half of Oklahoma is actually part of um, the Creek Indian Reservation, which is really not a small deal right? as a historical matter. Yeah. Right. But I think just to stay kind of in my area, such as it is of expertise, one thing that we, your, your listeners, we all might want to keep an eye on, the court has agreed to hear a case next fall, which is another religious freedom case, uh, and which is also kind of connected to some of the ones we were talking about earlier. So this is a case about a foster care agency in Philadelphia that is Catholic and that won't place foster kids into placements with same-sex couples. Now, there's lots of foster care agencies in Philadelphia, and so all kinds of couples, single people, are able to be foster parents. But this particular agency doesn't do those sort of placements. Philadelphia said that because of Philadelphia's anti-discrimination laws. It's illegal for this foster agency to have that policy, and therefore they're disqualified from 
from serving as a foster care agency. Mm. And this has an effect, you know, a lot of kids who this agency places are now not going to be placed. So what's interesting about this case, uh, a lot of things, but, you know, one is, is it permissible for Philadelphia to disqualify a foster care agency because of one of its religious practices? But if you think back a couple minutes ago, we were talking about, you know, in June medical and the precedent and the status of Roe and Casey. Well, there's a, there's a Supreme Court case that's now about 30 years old called Employment Division versus Smith which has to do with when religious believers are entitled to exemptions from otherwise applicable laws. And in this Philadelphia case, the adoption agency has squarely asked the court to reconsider and possibly reverse that decision. So we could have next fall a case that really doesn't present the Supreme Court with the question of whether to stand by or whether to abandon a 30-year-old precedent that's really shaped religious freedom law for um, in, in profound ways. And again, it also does connect to, uh, you know, the Bostock case mm-hmm. and the, it's about the Catholic schools and the ministerial exception and all that. It really just does, it, it raises these larger questions about, you know, in a pluralistic society where we have lots of different agencies and individuals who are providing services of all kind, whether it's counseling or poverty relief, or think of um, how many religious organizations are involved in the fight against human trafficking and so on. Do we really want to disqualify religious agencies from cooperating in pursuit of these important goals, just because we disapprove of one or another of their religiously motivated practices? There was a controversy a few years ago about whether a a Catholic relief organization that does a lot of really good work in terms of fighting trafficking and, and slavery, but they they wouldn't agree that they would refer the women they helped for abortion services. Mm. So they lost their contract to help with human trafficking because they didn't want to cooperate with abortion. And so I think cases like this really require us to think about, you know, how pluralistic yeah. is our law going to let us be right. in this era of deep disagreement about some of these questions. So this is one of the cases we're going to talk about next summer. Okay. If you don't mind coming back, uh, we can we can maybe have some conversations between now and then, too, if you don't mind. That would right. be great. You've been listening to Church Life Today. My guest has been Professor Rick Garnett of the University of Notre Dame Law School, director of the program on church, state, and society. This is the second of two episodes that we recorded uh, looking back at the 2020 Supreme Court summer decisions. Rick, thanks so much for spending your time with us. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed, it's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?